Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church, located in Grove City, Pennsylvania. As we approach the end of the 2017 fiscal year, we encourage you, if you've been helped by these sermons, to make a donation to Grace by visiting our website, graceanglicanonline.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Thank you for your help. And now we turn our attention to the far more important subject of the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. When I was undone, with no will to return to him, and no intellect to devise my own recovery, he came for me, even me. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Are you aware of a phenomenon called the butterfly effect? It is a hypothesis within the broad category of chaos theory, one which states that the smallest, subtlest, and nearly imperceptible causes can have mammoth consequences. The term was originally coined by Edward Lorenz, and is derived from the metaphorical example of a tornado being caused by minor distresses in the air, such as the distant flapping of butterfly wings several weeks prior. This theory, as related to weather patterns, remains, as you might imagine, highly speculative, But the butterfly effect bears itself out in other aspects of the human experience. Consider, for a moment, the shape of human history and the tiny details that have helped to sculpt it. The butterfly effect can be seen in Napoleon's failure to successfully invade Russia. In December of 1812, Napoleon's army of 600,000 Frenchmen marched toward Russia, but were surprisingly defeated. One reason for the downfall of the unstoppable French army was their uniforms. All of the army's clothing, spanning from the highest general to the lowly private, had tin buttons sewn into their uniforms. Now, when exposed to freezing temperatures, tin disintegrates into a fine powder. This led to the falling apart of every French uniform, the freezing of Napoleon's soldiers, and contributed significantly to the loss of his war. The butterfly effect can be seen historically, but it can also be seen and felt on a micro level within our own personal histories. It can work positively, like for the woman who randomly purchased her first lottery ticket and happened to win, thus becoming a multimillionaire overnight, This scratch ticket, randomly selected, now affects nearly every detail of her life, from the quality of her shoes to the security of her financial future. The butterfly effect can also work quite negatively. I recently spoke to a retired minister who abruptly disappeared from all ministerial and social engagements, a rare phenomenon amongst retired clergy who often experience difficulty in letting go. I asked him why he had become a functional hermit. He responded by saying, After leading the final service of worship before my retirement, 
an admiral in my congregation, a well-weathered man to whom I had ministered for many years, approached me, I assumed, to pass along some well wishes and parting sentiments. But instead, he took that opportunity to say to me, Pastor, I have borne with your dull, ineffective leadership for too many years. Every time you led us in, in holy worship, you sucked all the air out of the room. My friend said wearily to me, I've withstood countless slights in ministry, but for whatever reason, the words from that admiral cut through me like shattered glass. I will never lead worship again. At particularly delicate times, even very small things, a muttered phrase, a flirtatious glance, a furrowed brow, can, for whatever reason, reroute the deep currents of our lives. This is the butterfly effect. The birth of Jesus of Bethlehem, I suggest, reveals to us that the butterfly effect, that is, an imperceptible cause that engineers a mammoth consequence, is at the very heart of God's self-written story. At Christmas we celebrate one of the loftiest facts of true religion, that God became consubstantial with the human race, a braiding together in one man of the timeless and time-bound, the unaffected and the vulnerable, the spiritual and the tangible, the ancient one and the newborn, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And yet the surprising subtlety of this incarnation, the enfleshment of God, is worthy of our careful consideration tonight. The subtlety. Consider for a moment that Israel's prior revelation regarding God differs significantly from the Christmas portrait. Israel's God, the infinite and commanding I am, Yahweh, is portrayed as ever-present, certainly reliable, and uniquely self-disclosing, but ultimately unapproachable. Moses, the devout and consecrated lawgiver, was not permitted to look upon the face of God. The Hebrews gathered around Mount Sinai were forbidden from even scraping a fingernail against the stones lest they die. And Isaiah's vision of God's royal robe was enough to drive him into deep anguish. But the Bethlehem vision of deity displays something entirely new. When the great I Am visits us in this moment, he does not do so as he has in the past. Nor does he do so as a resplendent beam of light dawning from on high like a tractor beam from a distant UFO. Nor does God disclose himself as an avatar, that is, a spiritual essence that becomes temporarily human-like, in order to deliver a divine and commanding fatwa from heaven. Nor does God step onto the scene as an already mature adult, a dazzling man or woman, bringing to the world some immediate retribution, relief, or wisdom. He does not, in this moment, pummel the unjust into powder like General Patton. He does not immediately cure sicknesses like Louis Pasteur. He does not, in the stable, open his mouth and enlighten us with penetrating moral insight like Siddhartha. He does not solve mysteries like the human genome 
with Francis Collins. At this point, God in flesh, the divine incarnation, doesn't do anything. This bodily arrival of Yahweh is shockingly curious, impractical, and oddly subtle. He had, nine months prior to this Bethlehem event, submitted himself to common human biology. He walled himself off in a darkened womb, floating in embryonic fluid. The genius behind the Himalayas and the Indian Ocean became smaller in size than a tennis ball, than a butterfly wing, than a dime. And now, at his birth, Yahweh's contribution is nothing more than gurgling and crying, nursing and sleeping. He cannot read, write, or speak intelligibly. God, ultimacy, the great and soft, the unapproachable, is, within the grand scheme of things, in this moment, barely perceptible, like the flapping of a butterfly's wing. What's more, he goes unnoticed by the drowsy eyes of earth dwellers. No parade is organized for his arrival. No beacons are lit. No royal guards surround the crib to protect this new and fragile life. No one awakens Caesar from his slumber in Rome, informing him that because of a new Judean birth, his reign as divine emperor is no longer required. No. While the angel armies gather as a chorus to sing of the world's new monarch, the world's current monarchs, despots and conniving politicians, sleep comfortably in their beds, entirely unaware that the world is about to change. And the decorative golden eagles continue to line the borders of the empire. As far as they're concerned, nothing has changed. The only ones who were brought from ignorance to enlightenment were shepherds, not kings. And this is the path of God. This is the means of incarnation. This is the great butterfly effect. The way God arrives among us, not with a bang, but a whimper. Subtle, small, surprising. Surprising except to Scripture and to Scripture's spirit author. In this service of Lessons and Carols, our biblical passages detail the ongoing conversation within the canon itself regarding the forthcoming incarnation. Old Testament lawyers, priests, and prophets agree that when God comes to us, it will happen with surprising subtlety. Consider for a moment how the butterfly effect is stitched into predictive scripture. In the third chapter of Genesis, we see the aftermath of the fall, that is, the event in which humankind swaps obedience to God for the religion of a snake. Immediately after our anthropological parents gnaw at the forbidden fruit, God engages in a poetic fury against the devilish serpent. Woven into these words of wrath, God makes a vow. He makes a vow that a single seed, a solitary offspring of the human race, shall enact sacred vengeance upon the serpent and his dark cause, smashing its head into the ground and thereby slaying cosmic evil for all time. Later in the 17th chapter of Genesis, the patriarch Abraham, too old for reproduction, shall, from his aged body, offer to the world not only a son, 
but a nation. Not only a nation, but nations. Not only nations, but a Christ from within those nations. God will preserve the seed of the Genesis bride through Abram's clan. And then, hundreds of years later, in the 11th chapter of the prophet Isaiah, the seer paints for his audience a vivid image, that of a dead tree, or better, a butchered tree, a tree cut down in the prime of its life, a tree that seems to be dead, a symbol for the obliterated Jewish monarchy. But out of this stump, a new shoot is growing, and this shoot This new monarch, this new Christ, will give life to the world, and he will influence and affect all things, every molecule of creation, making them new, even the food chain itself. And then, 800 years later, after eons of collective human suffering and yearning, St. Luke's Gospel declares to them and to us that the rumors of seed and shoot have left the fog of metaphor and have become materialized. A virgin, a most unlikely vessel for childbearing, conceives and gives birth to her maker. The single seed, the future kin of great-grandfather Abraham, has, at long last, arrived. Born of woman, born under the law. These passages convey the heavenly designed butterfly effect, a solitary life in which God is conjoined to humanity shall affect every atom of the cosmos. This moment is the fulfillment of all prior revelation, and what a moment! The diminution of God, the great I am who wraps himself in life and pain. The highest apex of Scripture is not the parting of seas or manna in the wilderness or apocalyptic visions of fire and rain. It is instead when God does something, becomes something that is rather ungodlike. He becomes one of us from birth to death, which means he endures a world of calendars, deadlines, weather patterns, ailments, skinned knees food poisoning, and unsatisfying labor. He will mature in a rough-hewn world filled with hostile people with midnight eyes who will one distant day grab him by the throat, pound stakes into his skin, and watch him die in public. From birth to death, God has joined us here. Our pain floods his very human veins. But why? Why this predicted incarnation and the subtlety of it? Why does God not remain unapproachable, the unmoved mover of philosophy, safe from over-involvement and potential hurt? Or why does he not simply reveal himself as an, an impressive God of fits and starts, a God of occasional miracles, burning vegetation, cloudy pillars, food from heaven? Or why doesn't he, from on high, immediately in this moment, settle injustice? Why the incarnation? Because without the incarnation, we can never see, nor know, nor love God's truest nature. For only in the incarnation is communicated the idea of approachability. In the incarnation, God approaches us 
And he approaches us in such a way that he becomes approachable. He builds to us a bridge of flesh, his own. To those of us who find ourselves light years away from the divine intent, and who have neither the strength of will nor the wit to walk back to him. To quote one theologian, Christmas was written into the novel of the world for the bedraggled and beat up, for the sorely burdened who are still shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. It is for the inconsistent and the unsteady, for sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents, for earthen vessels who shuffle along on feet of clay. There we are, the multitude who wanted to be so faithful, but who got soiled by life and bested by trials. We have an incarnate companion who meets us on those streets and in those alleyways. The incarnation demonstrates beyond all doubt that heaven approaches us and does so with sacrificial empathy for sinners, empathy that acts on our behalf to rescue us from our self-chosen destruction. Without the incarnation, the empathy of God or ultimacy remains speculative, but the incarnation enfleshes empathy for all time. There is a remarkably tender and moving scene in the hit show, The Office. If you've seen the program, you know that the boss character, Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell, is a bungler and desperately insecure. At one point, Michael notices that the environment of his office is highly stressed and that he is the chief contributor to that stress. To bring some relief to the office, Michael arranges a public roast, a roast about his own person. That is, his employees are to gather and prepare for a party and then publicly mock him, thus relieving their collective anxiety. They very happily agree to do this. The event begins rather well, with Michael smiling and laughing along with all of the jests. But eventually, the humor turns dark and turns aggressive. And Michael becomes so terribly publicly ridiculed and embarrassed that he breaks down crying and runs out of the building. The next day, Michael skips work and spends time by himself in an abandoned park. And speaking to the camera and to the watching audience, Michael, using inaccurate but tender sentiments, communicates his pain. He says, you know, sometimes to get perspective, I like to think about a spaceman on a star incredibly far away. And our problems don't matter to him because we're just a distant point of light. But he feels sorry for me because he has an incredibly powerful microscope. And he can see my face. And I want to tell him right now, I'm okay. I'm okay. But I'm not. Those words from Michael 
actually affect me. The man on the star feels sorry for me. The man on the star sees my face. Very close to the emotion of incarnation. But Christ is not a star away. He is closer with his wounded hand on your own pulsing heart. This is why God incarnates himself. He becomes empathy and remedy for the human race, the friend of those whose souls feel desolate. And he shall grow up to be a sin-bearer who hangs on a crooked tree. From the perspective of sacred scripture, the sum total of human hope lies in a straw and spittle-ridden trough. Outside of that room, hope diminishes yard by yard. Perhaps this fact doesn't seem solid, stable, or massive enough to secure our hope. I mean, with all of the ever-present traumas that await us behind many corners and problems that face us personally, nationally, and internationally, what is it to us that a poor child was born in the dark? over 2,000 years ago. In the grand scheme of things, the Christmas event seems like a faint flapping of a paper-thin wing. Can such an idea, even such a fact, kindle hope? Or to quote Gandalf the White, in truth, there never was much hope. Just a fool's hope. How fortunate for us that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And that wise foolishness is gift-wrapped in the incarnation in which the everlasting mystery we call God embraces the indignity of smallness in order to approach us with redeeming kindness. And this kindness is now implanted in the earth and will bloom until the whole world is a new Eden. The sacred will soak up the stain. Enlightenment shall inform ignorance and grace shall subsume all error. The flapping of wings has occurred, and the winds of a new genesis begin to blow even now. It has begun. The Bethlehem revolt against the powers of this world is on the move. And like the entrance of God into the world, the beginnings of this revolt are subtle but substantial, even life-altering. Recently, a man I didn't know very well asked me a rather odd theological question. Happens more than you might assume. Pastor Ethan, is it all right for non-ordained people, you know, lay people like me, to make the sign of the cross in order to bless or absolve things? I am a low churchman who does not care about that question. And I had no idea where this question was coming from, but decided to ask him if he ever felt prompted to do such a thing. He replied, yes. Last night, I couldn't sleep. I became overwhelmed for the first time, really. Overwhelmed and sadly aware of the degree of hate and criticism that resides so strongly in me. Hatred for my father, hatred for my in-laws, hatred for my workmates, hatred for every church, and I've been to many of them because they're all wrong. I've discovered I'm the only one that's right, 
And that made me hate myself because of how wrong I must be to feel something like that. I did not know what to do with all of this, but I wondered what Jesus might do in a moment like this, even if he never felt such a thing. And so I found myself running instinctively to my bedroom window. I tore open the curtains and I made the sign of the cross in front of the whole world. I absolved them all. I forgave everything. And I feel a lot better having forgiven them, and I might have to forgive them again tomorrow night as well. Now, pastor, was I allowed to do that? Was that appropriate? I responded, I think that was the best possible thing you could have done. And I think I'll do the same thing tonight. My invitation to us is this. Be captured. Be captured by the butterfly effect of Christmas. Perceive again the beautiful subtlety of the God-made flesh, this approachable, sacrificial God of the manger. And then go to the window of your bedroom, tear open the curtains, and absolve the world. Give an irresponsible amount of money to the poor. Write letters of love to those who have mishandled your heart. Give yourself away for the sake of the God who gave himself for you. Christ is born. The butterfly has flapped its wings. Bethlehem felt it that night. And soon, the cosmos from pole to pole shall reverberate with the healing hurricane of heaven. Merry Christmas. Amen.